Hey everybody and welcome into the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Now in this week's episode, we'll have some NFL news, including the very debatable NFL Top 100. We'll have the latest on the MLB's issues with COVID and their season. We'll talk about the WNBA. We'll touch a little bit on the NCAA. And then we'll shift to our best for last, which will be a recap of the NBA's opening night. Now, I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. All righty, everybody, and welcome in. Now, we're going to start off this week talking about the NFL and what's been going on there. So first, the big news that pretty much happened right after our podcast went live was Jamal Adams being traded from the New York Jets finally to the Seattle Seahawks for the cost of two first round picks, a third, and Bradley McDougal, a starting safety in the league. Now, I think that is a very high price to pay for a player that you knew the Jets had to trade. I mean, it wasn't like the Jets were gonna keep him. He talked bad about everybody. He talked bad about the GM. He talked about the coach. He had made his feelings known. He had told fans of Dallas Cowboys to come get me. I mean, he was not going to be in that locker room come training camp. So you knew that they had to trade Jamal Adams. So it was a very steep price to give up for the Seattle Seahawks. But I guess Seahawks are looking at themselves as a win now team. And I can't refute that claim. Obviously, they've got a top three quarterback in the league at worst case in Russell Wilson. They've got a great coach in Pete Carroll. They have a massive amount of talent in terms of DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett. They'll be returning Will Disley. And now you're starting to retool that secondary and that defense, adding a guy like Jamal Adams. And so when you give a guy like Pete Carroll, who's known for being a rah-rah coach, a player's coach, we've seen that in his time at USC, and we've seen it in Seattle when he allowed Richard Sherman, Bobby Wagner, Cam Chancellor, and the rest of that crew, Legion of Boom, Earl Thomas, to have free reign of the team and to really put their imprint on the team and to imprint their mindset on the Seattle Seahawks as a unit. We got to see that a lot. So I think he'll allow Jamal to be Jamal. I don't think he'll have a huge issue with his social media situations unless Jamal gets a little out of hand and gets a little too anti-team. Obviously, we've seen Richard Sherman, who's active on social media. Earl Thomas has a social media presence. Russell Wilson has a social media presence, although it's not controversial by any means. And Pete Carroll doesn't do any efforts to try and suppress that and to try and get that out of those guys and to make them not do it. He doesn't seem that they kind of coach at all. So Jamal Adams, again, was traded to the Seattle Seahawks for a massive package. Now the Jets have two additional first-round picks, an additional third, and a starting caliber safety right now. So he can put the starting safety in and Bradley McDougal. He can take Jamal Adams' spot. They already have a good young safety with the Jets as well. So you put in Bradley McDougal. Fine. You, he's not Jamal Adams. He's not. But he's a quality player for a team that won't have to pay Jamal Adams now, like Seattle will eventually, even though Seattle and Jamal have agreed to long-term his contract. So they've agreed to push it back. They've agreed to allow him to play on his rookie deal, not tear it up and create a bunch of salary cap issues, especially with the cap coming down more than likely next season. But back to the Jets, they have a starting player in Bradley McDougal, and they've got two additional first-round picks. The Jets are not a good football team. I think they have a couple pieces. They got a starting quarterback with Sam Darnold, who I believe in. 
They've got Le'Veon Bell, a good, talented player. They're now starting to retool that offensive line with good young talent. But by no means are they a Super Bowl contender. They're not even a playoff contender. They'll be lucky to win, in my opinion, six or seven games. Especially with the Patriots doing a mini retool with Cam Newton. The Dolphins are obviously a good football team. They've got Tua, and they play hard down the stretch. And the Bills made the playoffs last season. So the Jets are looking at five wins, six wins. Top 10, 11 pick themselves. Add in Seattle's pick, which should be in the late 20s, in my opinion. And you have two first-round picks like that for the next two years. So that total of four first-round picks, that should net you four starters. Your own picks, being top 12 picks, should net you Pro Bowl-level players, all Pro-level players. And then that last first-round pick should net you a starter. So the Jets theoretically could retool with four starters, hit a couple of your second-round picks, and then spend a little money in free agency, and the Jets could be a, a player in the division within the next couple of seasons. Now, draft picks can't play. Draft picks are not on the roster. They don't help you immediately. So by the time those guys help you, that may be two to three, even four years down the road if you hit on them quickly. But it's something where the Jets could look to and say, okay, we have a pretty good future. We have a good GM we think we believe in. Obviously, he just pulled off this massive Jamal Adams trade. Coach is a question mark for them. Adams complain about Adam Gase. We've heard other players on the team, not really the biggest endorsees of Adam Gase. Sam Donald seems to be a big endorsee, but usually the quarterback stands behind the coach. So that is a struggle there in terms of the belief in Adam Gase and what he can do for the team. And the ownership group is embroiled in a little bit of controversy itself, Woody Johnson, with some things he may have done in his past that are not coming to light. So the Jets have more issues than football related, but sticking to the field in general, they have the pieces and the assets now to go be a good to great team in the not so near future with the draft picks they've accumulated through this trade and the draft picks they have on themselves and the young talent they're starting to build on the team. So that is all for that trade situation. And now we're going to shift to a topic I honestly do not like. The topic is the NFL Top 100. I hate talking about lists. It's opinion-based. I hate talking about when they all of a sudden those three tiers of quarterbacks came out. I didn't care. It's opinion-based. Who cares? I didn't care when Pro Football Focus released their rankings, although I care a little bit more about them because of analytical base. But a lot of times it's media opinion. Usually you can find who are the top contributors, find where they worked or currently work, and you can pretty much tell how they were going to vote. For instance, if there's a basketball discussion and it's a bunch of people from the Los Angeles, it's going to be a lot of Clippers and Lakers in the discussion. It's just how it happens. It's not biased on purpose. It's not professional bad decision. It's just you're around those teams more. You're around those players more. You naturally lean to what you're around. It's just the nature of the human spirit. And so... I usually disregard media lists. Unless it's a national poll, I usually disregard media lists. But a list I've always cared about and always paid attention to for a little bit of validity is the players list, the NFL Top 100. It is about guys who are playing in the NFL. Now, obviously, 100% of them don't return their ballots. And I believe this year they said the number was 57% of them returned the ballot. And the ballots aren't a full list of 100. It's pick your top 20. Now, I'm not sure how that works afterwards. Do they just rank 
do they just put an average of like I assume if I were to do it with only a top 20 then take everybody's top 20s and put them in a system and then it spits out the average number and then it ranks that way so if your average number is 22 but somebody else's average number is not even on the list it that's just weird and convoluted now that I think about it and I go down that path I no longer like that path we're gonna leave that alone but Anyway, so they do a top 20, not a full top 100. Uh, they have their own system, how to do it. I don't know. I tried to explain it. It didn't work. But they started off the list horribly. I love Kyler Murray. I do. But he's not better than Carson Wentz. Why is Carson Wentz not on the eight, on the NFL top 100? Josh Allen's on the list. Ryan Tannehill's on the list after eight games. He's in the 60s. And Carson Wentz didn't make the list? Carson Wentz made the playoffs during the deck chairs of lawn furniture. He made the playoffs during the practice squad quarterbacks turned receivers and made the playoffs, beating a guy in Dak Prescott who's in the 40s on this list. Is what's the problem? Is is it Nick Foles? Is is are we still doing that thing? Is the whole Nick Foles got to a Super Bowl, won the Super Bowl actually, without you? I I don't understand. Is it the injuries? It it can't be the injuries. I mean, Ryan Tannehill only played eight games. He's on the list. I don't get it i i may i'm not an nfl player obviously maybe i'm missing something but i just i don't understand and it's not just the players it's the media and they bash him for everything i mean literally he got a concussion from jadavion connie landing on the back of his skull and people called him injury prone so he had another injury name a human that jadavion connie could land flush on the back of your head and you just get up, pop up perfectly fine, no concussion, let's do this. Everybody's getting hurt from that situation. I mean, it's just like the media hate of Carson Wentz is extreme. And now the players disrespect as well? But, okay, be that as it may, it happens. There's omissions to this thing every year where everybody looks up and goes, how was he not on the list? Okay, that's perfectly fine. Not really, but let's let it live. And then we discover Patrick Mahomes is ranked the third best quarterback, fourth play overall, but third best quarterback behind Lamar Jackson and Russell Wilson. No disrespect to the MVP and Lamar Jackson or the runner of MVP and Russell Wilson. But Patrick Mahomes walked away with the gold, the Super Bowl ring. He got hurt and still put up similar production to both of those guys in terms of passing. And he missed two, basically three games. Now, there is a debate when the ballots went out. If the ballots go out in November at the same time with the Pro Bowl ballots, no fault with the list. No fault top of the list at all because Lamar Jackson at that point was putting up the historic season of all time. He was on pace for all kinds of total yards records at the quarterback position. His team was rolling. Baltimore looked untouchable. And it wouldn't have been too long after the Monday night massacre of the Rams in L.A. So I completely understand it. And at that time, Russell Wilson was number two in the MVP voting. I think he finished number two anyway, but he was number two. And up until the Monday Night Massacre, it was a debate whether Russ was going to get it or Lamar was going to get it in terms of MVP. If it's any point, and I do mean any point, the ballots go out in the playoffs, I don't get it. I officially don't get it. It's completely blown to me. Patrick Mahomes was down 10 points in every playoff game. He won every single one of those playoff games by at least 10 points. He was down 24-0 versus the Texans and absolutely wrecked Houston by the end of the third quarter. He was down 24-0 with a few minutes left in the second quarter, and the game was over in the Chiefs' favor by the end of the third quarter. It, I just don't 
I don't get that one. I mean, people going, oh, he was Lamar is the MVP. Of course he's number one. Well, Patrick Mahomes was the MVP the year prior, and he was four last year. I don't understand. I, I don't get that one. I'm honestly just perplexed at this point. But Mahomes noticed he put the emoji with the pen and paper, or the pencil and paper, rather. Like, he's taking names, taking notes. I mean, we saw what he did to Chicago, and he was running off the field counting how many people were picked ahead of him. Do you really want to give that guy more motivation? I'm That looks brutal in terms of everybody else in the NFL. Mahomes motivated with the whole team coming back, minus the opt-out and Damian Williams, but the whole team coming back. Oh, they're going to roll. And Patrick Mahomes has a lot of motivation, and deservedly so. If I'm Carson Wentz, I would have tweeted the same emoji. He should have been taking names, too, because he got disrespected as well. Now, speaking of opt-outs, the NFL has a opt-out option where players who do not feel safe playing can opt out of the 2020 NFL season. Now, they will get paid 150 grand if they're not high-risk. But if they're deemed high risk, they'll get 350 grand. Now, where does this money come from? This money comes as an advance on next season's salary. So, for instance, Dante Hightower, the Patriots opted out. He would do $8 million this year. Well, his contract tolls. So, his contract basically gets pushed to next year. And he'll make $8 million next year if he's on the Patriots roster. No reason why he shouldn't be. But he'll make $8 million next year. The 150 grand he's going to get in his pocket will be an advance on the $8 million. So instead of $8 million next year, he'll only count for $7.85 million, and he'll get $150,000 in his pocket this season. Now, if you were to be a high-risk person, he would have got $350 million, and things of that nature. But we've had a lot of opt-outs, a lot of positive tests, but they're doing it so early where these guys can get identified, they get tested, sit back home, identified, and then boom, the rest of the guys come in, you know you're healthy, you test every day for a while. I'm sure it'll slack to every other day as the season goes on, maybe even once a week, depending on football schedule, because you can test guys on a Wednesday, where it's also come back Thursday morning, and you know who's in, who's out, and all the other stuff. So I like the opt-out rule, especially since it's not costing anybody any money. Like for the Patriots, they had five or six opt-outs. They went from no cap space to 20-some million dollars in cap space with big names still floating around like Jadavion Clowney, who the Patriots could scoop up now and pay a pretty penny to because they have the cap space due to the, the advanced rules and all the other opt-out clauses. But up next, we're going to shift to Major League Baseball and what's going on with them and their situation and their season. Alrighty guys, and we are back. And now we're gonna shift gears and talk a little bit about Major League Baseball and what they've got going on. Now they've had an outbreak of COVID. The Miami Marlins have had 14 positive tests on players along with coaches and staff have tested positive for COVID as well. Now it sent a minor panic through the league because several players who tested positive for COVID played after their positive tests were taken in a game against the Philadelphia Phillies, which affected the Phillies, obviously, because they didn't know, okay, somebody might have passed it, and now half the team might have it in Philly. The Yankees were scheduled to play the Marlins. I mean, things were scheduled to happen involving the Marlins and the Phillies. Teams were, flat out said, we're not going to Miami until the situation's fixed. 
And so now they have a situation with the Marlins where they don't know what to do with the Marlins team. Now the Marlins have already started to switch gears. They have started to bring in replacement players, sign guys to minor league contracts, even though there's no minor league season, but sign guys to minor league contracts. That way they can call them up if they need them in case of the outbreak not being fully contained. Now baseball did put in a, a few restrictions and a few helps. They allowed expanded rosters. So there's now a 30-man Major League Baseball roster instead of 25-man. And they allow for other things to happen, like schedule flexibility and the ability to do a seven-game doubleheader, or seven-inning doubleheader, rather. If teams need to make up games, they have schedule flexibility where they can just move one series in, move a series out, move it back, depending on to get teams to play the correct amount of 60 games before going into the already expanded playoffs. Now, the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred, remains confident. He does not see it as a nightmare situation because as far as testing could tell, the outbreak has been contained only on the Marlins. No Phillies players tested positive. So there was a situation where it was generally contained. Now, there was a coach test positive, but it was a situation where it was not an outbreak. It was one coach. They might have been two coaches, but it was nothing where it was seen on the Marlins with 14 players plus coaches, plus staff. It was just those couple of people. And so the situation was contained. I mean, we saw in the MLS, two teams had an outbreak, boom, out, they were gone. The MLS kicked them out of the season in order to not infect the rest of the group. Now, that's something that Rob Manfred has not considered as far as reports can tell. He's not considered just kicking the Marlins out of the season. I mean, having a shortened season, 60 games, theoretically, you just move the Marlins from everybody's schedule and play the games at schedule. You just take the Marlins completely out. Or if you want to keep 60 games for everybody, you just sub people, sub series in for the Marlins games instead of having Miami play those games. You just boom, they're out. And then everybody else subs the game or you just remove the Marlins games from everyone's schedule. So that is a situation baseball has to watch carefully. Bob Manfred said it's not a nightmare situation, but I assume a nightmare situation can't be too much further from this. I mean, two or three teams break out like this. Now the, the entire league, especially with that strong union, starts to question the validity of the test, starts questioning the validity of the season, and if it's worth it. Maybe guys start pulling out mid-season because they're worried about contracting COVID during the season and bringing it home to loved ones considering they're not in a bubble. And the major league players reject the idea of a bubble in Arizona because they didn't want to be away from family that long. But now we're going to shift to the NBA slash WNBA. What's going on with a quick recap of going on there and the WNBA starting up real well and the NBA about to start. Alrighty, guys, and we are back. Now, we're going to start off with the WNBA. They got their season started. We started off with the debut of Sabrina Onesco on the New York Liberty. Now, her debut did not go well. She shot four for 19, if memory serves me correctly. It didn't go well. Her team lost by a lot. Um, the New York Liberty are not a great team. They're a young team, however. They've got some young talent. But in the WNBA, it's about the old vets, the Candace Parkers, the Sylvia Files, the Dewana Bonners, even young superstars like Asia Wilson, Brianna Stewart, 
you got some more old vets, Diana Taurasi, Brittany Griner, people like that. It's about experience. And so with their Liberty team being young, a lot of rookies are playing major minutes on that team, including Inesco herself. They struggled early, and they took a couple of major L's, even though Sabrina picked it up in her second game, scoring 33 points along with seven boards and seven assists. Now, there was a big Western Conference battle, traditional Western Conference battle, right out of the gate with the Sparks and the Mercury. Sparks taking that game. But all in all, we see several great players looking like themselves. It is so great to see Diana Taurasi healthy, ready to roll, and crushing people. It's so good to see DT doing that. It's good to see people like Brittany Griner, who may have had an off year last year. Not really the best year, along with Skylar Diggins-Smith, who took the year off for her child's birth. It is a situation where seeing those ladies back on the court ready to roll was great to see. It's great to see Candace Parker in shape and not having to deal with overcoming injuries. COVID might have actually helped that out because she had more time to heal her body. And she looks great in shape. Uh, new new stars, new faces in new places. Angel McCautry on the Las Vegas Aces tearing up with Asia Wilson. That's going to be a tandem. That's going to be a scary tandem. If they can get their chemistry ready and rolling to go from the first couple of weeks of the season, I wouldn't want to play the Aces in the playoffs. Chicago looks great. All that speed, man. They've got speed for days. If you go down the alley, Quigley and Vandersloot with Diamond DeShield at the three, that's a lot of speed. And it's really hard to deal with, as we saw when they played the Sparks and gave the Sparks absolute fits on defense. Basically ran them out the gym. Now, I did like how the WNBA did their court. So the courts for the WNBA are basically built out of a sound stage. It was a big old empty room. It was a sound stage. They built their course from the ground up, all the signage, the courts themselves. Everything was built from the ground up, and that is really cool. It's not like the NBA where they went to Disney World of Sports where they just had to swap out the court and put the plexiglass up, put the bench. It was built for a basketball arena. The WNBA created nothing. They created something out of nothing at IMG using sound stages and how that looks amazing. They did a great job. With the sound stage, you hear more of the natural feels because it's meant to bounce sound back. You hear more tennis shoe squeaks. You hear more defensive calls, more coaching. They try to play the music to limit that, but you still hear it, and that's beautiful to hear. You know, shifting gears to the NBA, all the scrimmages are done, and they are debuting actual basketball tonight. Now, I will be recapping games in my best for last, so... Keep it there if you want to hear a quick recap of the games and just my opinions on the first couple of games. But scrimmages look great. Uh, scrimmage superstar Bowl Bowl continues to look great. And we also saw the debut of Michael Porter Jr. on the Nuggets in the scrimmages in the last one. We have a lot of controversy. We have Lou Will with his Magic City wing stop uh, and being forced to miss the first couple of Clippers games with a 10-day quarantine because he... Stopped off at Magic City, broke all kinds of NBA rules, and the NBA had to punish them for that. And, you know, they do the advanced testing with the nose swab, the super deep nose swab, I should say. And they do the 10-day quarantine instead of the traditional four-day quarantine like Zion got upon his return. The Clippers also do not have Montrez Harrell as he still has not returned to the bubble from dealing with the issue that he left the bubble for. However, they did get Patrick Beverly back, and they look pretty decent with Joe Kim Noah who seems to be a lot more better in shape than I thought he would have been after his long layoff and the injury but basketball is back I'm so excited 
scrimmages. Real basketball is back. The scrimmages were great. The scrimmages were cool. It was a great fix. But only seeing stars playing 18 minutes. Only seeing stars, you know, the, the defensive rotations were slow. Sets were pretty slow moving in and out. Not a lot of cutting, hard, aggressive action. The, that was something that I missed thoroughly. So getting to see that tonight will be awesome. And like I said, we will be discussing the Pelicans versus the Jazz and the Lakers versus the Clippers in earnest and in full in our best for last segment. So definitely tune into that if you are wanting to hear about that. And up next, we will be shifting to the NCAA and what they've got going on in terms of scheduling and other things going on with the NCAA and their season or trying to get a football season to happen. All right, guys, we'll be back right after this short break. Alrighty guys, and we are back. And now we're going to talk about quickly the NCAA and what they've got going on. So as we know, COVID has basically changed the landscape of sports forever, or at least maybe not forever, but maybe forever. Who knows? But at least for this season. So the NCAA, a lot of their conferences have decided to do conference only football schedules. So that Pac-12 going conference only, Big Ten's going to go in conference, ACC is going expanded conference. So maybe the Big Ten does the same, but the ACC is going to play 10 conference games and one non-conference game. And they're going to allow Notre Dame to play a 10-game conference schedule, even though they're not officially in the ACC. They're going to allow them to play a 10-game conference schedule with 10 ACC opponents. And then they'll get to play the one non-conference game themselves. So maybe they still have the annual game versus USC for the Jewel Shillelagh. But definitely Notre Dame will be playing a football season because that's what I was concerned about when I found out conference only. I'm like, well, Notre Dame is not in the conference. The conference affiliated with the ACC because all their other sports are technically ACC sports, but they kept football independent because of their TV deals and tradition and all the other stuff that they want to tell you. But like I said, Notre Dame will be playing in the ACC's 10-game schedule. So they're going to have a football season. Now, the SEC, in turn, did the exact same thing, which I figured that because, remember I spoke about a week or two ago, that the SEC, the Big 12, and the ACC were pretty much going to go in lockstep. They were going to do the exact same plan all the way around, which is why I say you need a commission college football, so everybody does the same thing, but that's a different story for a different day. The... SEC is going to play a 10-game conference schedule, add in a one-night conference game. So they'll play 11 out of 12 games. Not a big deal at all. So that'll allow LSU to play the in-state team they play every year. Because they always invite an in-state team, give them a boatload of money, play them, that sort of thing. And that'll put the best players in the best conference on the field all versus each other. Because there's, what, 14 teams in the SEC? So if you're playing 10 of them, you're playing the best of the best. I mean, you already got to play the seven on your side or eight on your side, and then you got to cross conference and play three or four. I mean, that's going to make a hell of a schedule when you have to play 10 conference games in the SEC and the conference championship game before you even look at the conference football playoff. And so I assume the Big 12 would do something very, very similar where they'll play again and expand the schedule 10 games. Now, they've already nixed the LSU game versus Texas. So I assume that game just gets pushed back a year and we see what happens in terms of COVID and fans and that in a year. Hopefully it's gone. Prayfully it's gone. But 
that will allow the SEC to be decided on the field. The ACC is going to be decided on the field. Now, the ACC is not nearly as strong as the SEC, top to bottom, but they do have an up-and-coming North Carolina team and other talent in the ACC, especially with Notre Dame having to play a real conference schedule this year. That'll be interesting to see. But the NCAA is also allowing opt-outs, which I'm not really sure the word allow is appropriate, considering that they technically aren't professionals. So if these student athletes want to not play for COVID reasons, I'm almost sure that the colleges and the NCAA itself has to uphold their scholarship. But we already have an opt-out. The cornerback from Virginia Tech, Caleb Farley, who's a projected first-round draft pick, has decided to opt out of this upcoming college football season because he does not feel that it is safe for him to be on the field at this time. So he decided to opt out. He's the first and only player so far to have done this. And I wonder what other maybe top picks who might be concerned of injury decide that, hey, it's just not worth it for me to risk injury and COVID to go in a season where I'm a top pick anyway. You know, we've seen guys want to shut it down before. We've seen Jadavion Clowney get forced to come back for his junior year after the massive hit in the Outback Bowl versus Michigan and basically play at half speed all year to not get hurt. We've seen Chase Young get affected when he started hearing number one pick, number one pick, number two pick. His production tailed off in the second half of the year, maybe because he was thinking about injuries and things of that nature. COVID could be a convenient thing to use. Hey, I don't feel comfortable playing for COVID. Nobody can blame you for that. Nobody can bash you for that. I'm definitely not bashing Caleb for his decision, and I'm proud of him for making a decision, especially being the first one to do it and such a high-profile NFL draft pick prospect to do it. So I think that was a good decision for him, but I'm just saying in terms of other people, maybe they see it as a convenient way to not play this season, especially if they're a high draft pick, in order to not be hurt or draft stock affect or anything like that. And also, the NCAA will allow social justice messages on the jersey, even replacing the last name. Similar to what we see in the NBA, where they're going to allow you know the players to have equality or I am a man or Black Lives Matter on the back of their jersey. Or it could be a situation where it's the WNBA, where the WNBA has their traditional jersey, and then they have Breonna Taylor's name right under the name on everybody's jersey. So, I mean, it's like a black block, and it's got Breonna Taylor on it. So, that could be something where they highlight that. And we've seen it in other leagues, too, where in soccer, we've seen them wear pregame shirts with different messages on the back supporting Black Lives Matter and things like that. So I'd be very interested how that works. I know several schools don't even put anything on the back of their jersey. Like USC, it's just a basic traditional number with nothing else on the back. And I think, if memory serves me correctly, Notre Dame doesn't put anything on the back of their jersey either. Maybe I could be wrong about that. I know Penn State doesn't. So schools like that who don't put anything on the back of their jersey, I wonder how they're going to treat this situation, like putting the messages back there, if they even allow it in general. So I'd be interested in watching that. And up next, we're going to recap the opening night of the NBA restart in the bubble. And we are back with a full recap of NBA basketball being fully back. It was on TNT. It was Thursday night. It was a doubleheader. And quite frankly, I just... It was beautiful. I mean, I had the food out. I was ready to go. I was sitting down watching games. I had switching jerseys mid-game. I mean, it was great. 
It was just, it, it brought me back. It was just, we waited, what, four, four and a half months for this moment to, to come back. And I was excited. I mean, I just, I was ready to go. And I know most of the world was. I'm texting in different group chats. I'm talking to people. They're all watching the game, comment on every live bucket because this is the first time we've seen real basketball. Sure, we had the scrimmages. That was, that was great. That was spectacular. Beautiful. Glad we saw it. But we opened the season with Jazz and Pelicans. Well, the Jazz are in the playoffs pretty firmly. So they're really just tuning themselves up, especially when they lost Bojan Bandanovic. So they're really trying to figure out, okay, how we're going to replace, what, 20 points a game with Bojan Bandanovic? Especially his shooting and his defense when he decides to play defense. And so they're pretty much in the playoffs. They're trying to fine-tune things up. And then we get the Pelicans, with everybody's darling child, the next face of the league, in my opinion, and Zion Williamson. Now he was playing on burst, and I did not like that at all. I know he had a leg cramp issue before leaving the bubble for the family emergency. I knew about that, but they had him on a minutes restriction, a pretty firm one. I mean, he ultimately only played 15 minutes, and he played them in about four-minute bursts on average. The first couple were three minutes, and the second two bursts were a little bit longer, and it got to about 15 minutes total. He said after the game that they didn't hold him back. Obviously, he wanted to go more than 15 minutes, but he understood with the fact that they didn't really have time to work him back. And he pretty much he showed up at the bubble, went to quarantine, so he couldn't do anything, had like a practice, and then was on the fifth court. So I get that. Odds are he wasn't in training for that week, week and a half that he was out slash quarantine, especially with the fact that, you know, he had the leg cramp issue and was leaving practices early and working himself out in practice before he left. So I get that, but obviously as an NBA fan, you want to see as much Zion as you can get. He scored like 13 points in 15 minutes. At one point, he was averaging more points than minutes on the floor. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, he was going at everybody. The only person seemed to stop him was Rudy Gobert on a weak side block. I mean, the shots this kid can flip in from the angles he can flip them in, they look horrible. Like, he flips it up and you're like, that's not going in. And it catches the rim, catches the backboard, and it goes in. And you're just like, okay. I mean, but he does it so often. It's not a situation we call, oh, lucky shot. It's like the fifth lucky shot in a row. Like, So you want to see more of him. But I agree with what the TNT announcer was saying last night, where there's going to be defense ahead of offense. So expect a lot of turnovers early. I believe the Pelicans and the Jazz broke both broke 20 turnovers last night. Or if they didn't, it sure felt like it. And at one point, they were just handing the ball back and forth. You saw isolation scores are going to be the way to go for the first few games until the offensive rotations and the movements and the cuts become natural again. Like Brandon Ingram carries the Pelicans through the first half because he's the isolation scorer. He has like 15 points in the first half. I mean, he's hitting contested shots over guys like Rudy Gobert, getting and ones. He is doing what he has to do to score to keep the Pelicans alive. You see a lot of the ISO scores. Donovan Mitchell was trying to get his shot off, but he was missing. Alonzo Ball couldn't throw a brick in the ocean if he's still on the beach. I mean, it was rough. And then you've got Rudy Gobert running dunk centers. He's just going to be a running dunk center. Just throw the ball to the rim. He's always going to be able to dunk the ball. That's never going to be a problem. And so... You had the Pelicans honestly having control of that game for most of the game. Like I said, Ingram was hot early. J.J. Reddick picks it up. Josh Hart starts nailing a couple threes. Zion is bursting like crazy when he comes in for his short little runs. And they control that game for a lot of time. And then championship level experience kicks in. And I know the Jazz doesn't have championship level experience. But when the Pelicans are on the floor, they're little. Derek Favors is not a rim protector. 
He's only six foot ten, I think. And he's more of a power forward than a center. So when they're trying to play him as center, especially against a true big and Rudy Gobert, he's just not equipped to do that. He's not equipped to take that kind of level of punishment and responsibility when they're driving. He steps over, Gobert's dunking, or he's not moving because he just moved the last time and Gobert dunks, so now they're just running right by him laying the ball up. They're going to need another big. That's something the Pelicans are going to need. I think Jackson A's need to play a lot more. And I think they may need to call up one of these roaming seven-footers they might have somewhere and see if they can sneak them in the bubble for a few days. I mean, they're going to need something because they're little right now. And if they do scrape together and somehow get the eight seed, they're going to have to play LeBron, AD, JaVale, Dwight. I mean, that's not a good matchup. But back to the game, J.J. Redick looked good. Donovan Mitchell heated up towards the end of the game. Uh, they were making tough shots, great shots. And the Jazz ultimately win. Uh, irony moment. The last, the reason the season shut down was because Rudy Gobert gets COVID. So, of course, the first bucket back from COVID was by Rudy Gobert. And, of course, the game ends on Rudy Gobert's free throws. It's like the most 2020 thing ever. Like, the person who ends it, the person who starts it, and the person who finishes the first start is all the same person. I mean, it's like the weirdest thing ever. It's like, how 2020 is that? So they Jazz ultimately win by two. Brian Ingram had a good look, not a great look, but a good look at a three to win it. One of those hazy step side shots that people are trying to popularize ever since Kyrie hit it in the finals. And it rimmed out. I mean, it looked good coming out of his hand. I thought he nailed it, but it rims out and the Pelicans lose. Hurt them big time. So now they're looking at Memphis in front of them. They're trying to catch Memphis, but even if they don't catch Memphis, they got to stay within four games and stay the ninth seed because there's three teams tied with them. So they've got to fend off the two teams behind them, really all the teams behind them, in order to stay within four games of Memphis for the playing tournament. Now, shifting to the game that everybody's waiting on, the battle for LA. LeBron versus Kawhi, AD, Paul George, now, the Clippers were a little short-handed. Lou Will, with his Magic City chicken wing incident, was still in quarantine, and he won't play for the Clippers next game either. And Montrez Hero has not returned to the bubble, as I spoke about earlier. But it was still the Battle of L.A. Everybody wanted to see it. Who cares about anything else? And it went about as unexpected as possible. <laughs> what I mean by that is, if I would have predicted a stat line pregame, I'm like, okay, LeBron, 28-7-8. AD gives you about 25. Kawhi and Paul George get you about 25 apiece. Ultimately, the Lakers win because there's no Lou Will and Montrez. And Lou Will usually closes games for the Clippers, but he's not there, obviously. Well, I was wrong. Um, LeBron shot horribly. At one point in the game, he was 2 for 11. I think he, he finally heated up a little bit in the third in the fourth quarter. He was 3 for 12. And it wasn't great. I mean, he had to keep airballed a 3. I mean, he was missing layups. It wasn't great. If Anthony Davis didn't go Anthony Davis mode and just go off, he scores like he nails back-to-back threes. He has a post-fade. At one point, he's smiling because he's like, they're just draining there from everywhere. It doesn't matter. Now, the Clippers showed their heart. The Clippers were down like 12 early. Kawhi picked up a couple of cheap fouls. I'm thinking, okay, when they went up by 12, Lakers go up 12. I'm like, the game's, the game's about to be over. LeBron's about to put his foot on the gas, and they're about to go. And LeBron tried. He just missed. So it allowed the Clippers to stay in it. The Lakers had a ton of turnovers. So did the Clippers. Because when the Clippers battle all the way back in front and go up by 10, 11, they have a turnover spree. And so the Lakers get back in it. You've seen big shots from Danny Green. You've seen big shots, obviously, from Anthony Davis. 
You've seen Kuzma pulling cool shots. Kuz is going to shoot. Deion Waiters is scoring the basketball. Dwight Howard was in foul trouble for the Lakers, so JaVale had to play a little more, and AD played a little more at the five, which actually is their best lineup analytically, and Anthony Davis at the five. But then you saw Paul George, man. He woke up in that fourth, that third, fourth quarter, man, hitting three threes in a row. He was on fire. Kawhi shot bad early. Never really got into a rhythm. Made a lot of free throws like Anthony Davis ultimately did to get his points. Made a ton of free throws. I didn't really like the officiating in either game. They felt choppy. I mean, those guys have been off for four and a half months, too, so I understood. But back to the game, uh, you had Anthony Davis scoring fairly at will, whether it was free throws or in the field. And then you got to the all-important fourth quarter. And you saw where the bench no longer mattered. I mean, Jermichael Green and Patrick Beverly were raining threes for the Clippers at a certain point. And then it changed. And then the battle changed. It changed from... Kawhi on LeBron for some part of the game. LeBron go back on Kawhi. They guarded each other for a lot more than I would have expected for a non-playoff game. I mean, it's a seeding game. It basically didn't matter for the Lakers. The five and a half up with eight left. They basically in as the one seed. But Kawhi and LeBron guarded each other for a lot of that game. And in the fourth quarter, especially late, it was almost exclusive. I mean, they were going back and forth at each other. Um, LeBron played a little passive. A little passive. And I think his shot his percentage from the field was affecting that, especially when he saw teammates were making a little bit more than he was, even though the team shot bad in general. But they were going back and forth at each other, Kawhi and LeBron. And it came down to the last possession where LeBron misses a runner, misses it pretty badly, and it caroms right back to him. He catches it and just flips it right back in, and it goes in. Lakers go up. And so everybody knows, okay, well, LeBron just got his, Kawhi's coming back. And so Kawhi tries to get a move. I think he tries to get a switch. I'm not sure what the point of the screen was, but I'm thinking it was to switch LeBron off because LeBron had a pretty good game defensively. That was a prove-it game. He was going to prove he could still play defense at the top level in the league. And so they tried to switch him off, I believe. It looked like a switch kind of pick where you try to like just rub him off and make him stick because you want to switch, not give anybody an open shot. LeBron ultimately switches onto the ball. So he switched from Kawhi and lands on Paul George with the ball. And he shuts Kawhi and Paul George down, forces a miss, and the Lakers win. I mean, we brought basketball back with a flair. We had big-time dunks. We had Zoda Zion dunks on the Pelicans games. We had LeBron breaking the rim, it looked like, and yelling like good old times. I mean, we had Dwight Howard around the rim. We had... Paul George starting to heat up. I mean, we brought basketball back with a boom. It was great to see. It was two games back, two two-point contests, both with the shot to win being close. I mean, like I said, Brandon Ingram was rimmed out and Paul George hit the back of the rim. I mean, neither one of those shots were bad. Both of those shots could have gone in. I mean, with a little bit more luck, honestly, both of those shots could have gone in. And we're sitting here talking about a different discussion today. But ultimately, basketball is back. I am so excited. The game is going to be rolling in constantly all through this thing until we get to the playoffs and it becomes a semi-normal schedule. That's when they start really playing on the three courts, playing with TV, stuff like that. But ultimately, basketball is back. It's so good to talk about live sports again. It's, it's amazing. We're probably going to lead every show with basketball for the near future. Until we get base, until we get football back in earnest and things like that. But guys, that'll wrap up the show. Wow, our longest show so far. I uh, thank you guys for sticking with me all the way until the end today. 
I hope you guys have a great day. Remember, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and also the Twitter at JTime Sports. Repeat at JTime Sports, all caps. I live tweeted a lot during the open night. Probably won't do that too often, but I live tweeted a lot during open night of action just to keep you guys updated for those of you who weren't watching. But remember, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends. Tell your sports rivals who you want to teach some sports knowledge to. And ultimately, subscribe to us, man. I appreciate all the support. Again, we do these things weekly. I love doing this. I hope you guys are loving it, too. I'm open to feedback whenever you guys submit that. And I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Justin Jackson, signing out.